Well, it's a great uh, joy and privilege to be back with you today and to be able to share in God's word with you guys. Uh, it doesn't seem that long ago that that family with those four little kids <laughs> set, out from, uh, set out from Gladesville, sent by you guys back in uh, 2007. Uh, although you sent us in the February of 2007, we ended up getting there in December of 2007. I'm not sure what was going wrong with your prayers at that stage, maybe. <laughs> but, but we did wait for a whole year, but that meant another year of fellowship here at Gladesville, which was also a great pleasure. But it's great to be back with you. We ha- are here for the whole year. Um, you haven't seen us much at Gladesville yet, but that's because we're still visiting all of our different churches. But we do hope to be around a fair bit more during the year. How about I pray for us as we look at God's word? Father, thank you for the great privilege it is to have your word speak to us today. Help us to take what we've already heard, to respond rightly, to respond with faith, and to respond with obedience. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever had somebody say to you, Well, where's your God now? Did you notice that question from the psalm? Where is their God? And maybe you've had a family member say something like that to you. Where's your God now? Something's happened in the world. Something's happened perhaps in your life. Something's gone. Life is difficult. Things are going on. And that question comes maybe from a family member, somebody, maybe a friend, maybe a workmate who wants to sort of (laughs) prod a little bit. So where's your God now? Common question for us, when things are hard, things go wrong. Perhaps you've asked the question yourself, when things don't work out as you expect. Perhaps you invest in a ministry, perhaps you've been teaching scripture at school and gee, it's jolly hard work and it doesn't really feel like you're getting anywhere and you sort of think, well, where is is God now? Where is he? Or maybe you've been trying to reach your workmates for years and it's, again, jolly hard work. Perhaps you've spent years in a student ministry in a foreign country and on one stage it all goes pear-shaped. And you think, where is is God now? What's going on? Haven't we invested our time and effort into this? Haven't we been doing your work, Lord? Maybe I don't have too much to show for it at this moment. Isn't it meant to be different? Aren't we doing his work? Or perhaps we ask it in connection with the ministry, the the most important ministry of all of us, the ministry of raising our kids. And we ask, Lord, haven't I invested my time, my life into this? And now I can't control the decisions they make. God, why has it turned out like this? Why is it happening to my kids? Where are you, God, in the lives of my kids? Where are you, God? Where is your God now? The psalmist puts the word on the lips of the nations as they look at Israel and say, where is your God? Where is your God? But as we, and as we read through the book of Acts, I think we see the answer to that question. Where is God? See, Acts is all about this advance of the gospel 
in the early days of the church. Is it the triumphant advance of the gospel? Yes and no. (laughs) Yes and no. Yes, the gospel advances. Yes, there are great moments of people turning to Christ. And we think of Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. And then other moments where great numbers turn to the Lord Jesus. But is it the triumphant advance of the gospel taking over the Roman world? Yes and no. Because generally it happens through suffering and difficulty and persecution. The gospel advances despite the persecution, despite the suffering, despite the difficulty. Or perhaps we can actually say more than that. It advances because of the persecution, the suffering and the difficulty. But the question, no doubt for Paul, no doubt for the, 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 the apostles as they spread that message, as they face these difficulties is, where is God now? In chapters 18 and 19, I think we see some clear answers. So in chapter 18, we're going to focus on chapter 19, but let's have a look at chapter 18 together. We see a repeated pattern in Corinth. So you see it there in verses 1 to 8 of chapter 18. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them. And because he was a tent maker, as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, "'Your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent of it. From now on, I'll go to the Gentiles.'" Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshipper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptised. It's sort of that sort of uh, deja vu experience in the book of Acts, isn't it? So Paul arrives in the city of Corinth, he preaches, he reasons, he argues, he, he testifies in the synagogue, but gets to a certain point, there's a rejection, And so he moves off. He moves elsewhere. And perhaps we're thinking, ah, and the pattern's going to continue in this case, like we've already seen in the book of Acts, like happened in Thessalonica, and then later happened in Berea, that, well, not only is that, he's going to get kicked out of the city as well. In this case, it doesn't go there. But fascinating, isn't it? That we see the rejection by the Jews of Paul and his message. And yet, who is it that's converted? In verse 8... Crispus, the synagogue leader. So in the midst of persecution, the midst of hardship, in the midst of rejection, God does an amazing work and converts the leader of the synagogue. You can imagine Paul perhaps thinking, as the, the rejection happens, as they get kicked out, as they have to move next door, interestingly they do, and he moved next door to, to make, their, make their statement. Here we go again. Acts 17, Thessalonica. But here, Paul receives a word from the Lord. Verses 9 to 11. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. Paul receives a word from the Lord. Despite appearances to the contrary, God is in control. God knows what he's doing. 
God has his plan for this city. In this case, he's not getting kicked out. He's going to stay there and keep preaching the gospel. God graciously gives Paul a word to encourage him. In many ways, it's a word that Paul perhaps didn't necessarily need because he knew that God was in control. And he would have just kept preaching until (laughs) until they'd kicked him out. But God graciously gives him the encouragement to hang in there, to keep speaking, to keep preaching. The persecution does come. You can read that in verses 12 to 16. The persecution in, 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 in the city of Corinth comes. But at this point, the Gentile ruler shows no interest. He just considered it's just, a, just an internal Jewish affair, not interested in things between you, just a religious thing. You guys, you Christians, you Christian Jews, really, he's saying to them, you, you guys work it out yourself. I'm not really interested in what's going on. We can ask the question, in the midst of difficulty, another city... Paul, having trouble and having difficulty and suffering and persecution, asked the question, where is your God? He's not absent. He's a God who's present. He's a God who speaks and reassures his servant. Difficulties are not a sign of God's absence. In fact, as we've seen in the book of Acts, it's often the sign that God is at work. In the second half of chapter 18... We can see various movements of Paul and perhaps a map will come up on the screen. We're not going to go into the details. In the, in the growth groups during the week, you'll be able to work a little bit more with this part of the passage. But we see various movements. He travels with Priscilla and Aquila, whom he met in, 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 in Corinth, and he leaves them in Ephesus. And then we hear about Apollos, who arrives in Ephesus and gets taught by Priscilla and Aquila. But then, uh, but then Apollos goes back to Corinth. And you can, you can check that out a, a little bit later. Just one note on that section, which I think is helpful for us to remember. Paul was a team player. Sometimes we have this idea that Paul is this lone ranger who's going it all alone. And maybe you've got that concept of the missionaries sometimes as well, that they're lone rangers. No, no, Paul was a team player, very much involved with the people around him, very much supported by the people around him, very much needing the prayers of the saints as, they do, as, as he did his work. And in chapter 19, we arrive to the city of Ephesus. And it's dedicated to this ministry of Paul and others in Ephesus. In the first few verses, after ministering to a group of believers who had only received the baptism of John, not a baptism in the Holy Spirit, Paul enters the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months. And then we have another bit of deja vu. You see it there in verses 8 to 10. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. You can sort of think, here we we go again. (laughs) Here we go again. Preach in the synagogue up to a certain point, but then things get difficult, then things, they run into trouble and they have to move and maybe he's going to, have, he's going to be kicked out. No, in this case, no, he's not kicked out here either. Two years of preaching, of faithfully teaching God's word in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. And the word of the Lord spreads from Ephesus. See, Ephesus, and that was really helpful, the video we saw with, with the kids, with Josh, Ephesus was a center, a cultural and economic and religious center for all of Asia Minor, which is what we, a lot of which is what we now know as Turkey. 
So there's a couple of pitches that will come up, not as good as, you know, I don't, you know, he's one-upped me there completely with a a, personal video. I haven't been to Ephesus. So these are somebody else's photos. Um, But but there's the theatre from the distance. There it is again. But we heard, that was incredible, wasn't it? To hear the singing in that theatre. Without microphones and the, and the, 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 the strength of the, the, the voices. And, and just to put ourselves in that situation with this chanting, two hours. I mean, gee, if you didn't have migraines before that moment, you'd end up with a migraine, surely. Two hours of chanting in that theatre. Imagine the noise. Imagine it. Ephesus was a cultural centre and we don't have a photo of it because it's destroyed. It's, we only have found the ruins of the temple of Artemis. It was one of the seven, known as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Ephesus was a cultural center. And here Paul preaches, uh, Paul preaches for two years. Ephesus was known for its magnificent theater, its baths, its library, a street that was 11 meters wide, possibly 11 meters, maybe as wide as this church with columns. It's almost like... Christ Church <laughs> a bit longer though. Columns, 11 metres wide, and this, this temple. Temple to Diana, or uh, Artemis. And here in this impressive city, God does an impressive work. You see it there in verse 11? God, as well as the preaching, verse 11 tells us God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. So that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Now, I'm not sure about you, but I read that verse and it makes me feel a bit funny. <laughs> like, that seems a bit weird, don't you think? So Paul does amazing miracles, but then it actually mentions that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Anyone else? So that, that rings a bit, a little bit sort of... Because we've seen that sort of thing. We see that sort of thing going on in the world, don't we? What's going on here? Doesn't that seem a little bit superstitious or something? I, I, I think the point is, and I think here's where our reading of Acts is really important, isn't it? That because it happened there doesn't necessarily mean it happens everywhere. This is what happened in Ephesus. And I think there's a particular point about it happening in Ephesus. It has to do with the context what was Ephesus all about? What had happened in Ephesus, according to the Ephesians? Well, we'll read it later in the passage. Diana, Artemis, in theory, had descended from heaven. That's what they claim, don't they? This statue of, 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 of Artemis is literally something that dropped down from the heavens. This is a city which is overwhelmed by things that are impressive. It needs to be impressive. And I think God, in this occasion, is matching in some ways, what is going on in terms of the people, what they needed to hear. What you needed to do in Ephesus was to do something impressive. Now, this is not necessarily a pattern for what God, and we've already seen it in Acts. God doesn't do that in all of this. Paul doesn't have that capacity in all of the cities, does he? It's not the same. It's not what he did. What did he do in Athens? He reasoned and preached in the Areopagus. In Ephesus, this place which is based on impressiveness and this touch of heaven, God acts and does amazing things through Paul. And of course, it's so amazing that people want to copy it. So your copy artists come along. 
And so we read in, the, in verses 13 to 16 that some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish, Jew, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. It's an amusing, really, episode, isn't it, in terms of what happens? But it's an example of trying to copy the work of God. God is doing something amazing through Paul. So what do people try and do? They want to try and copy it. They want to try and get in on it. They, whether for economic or personal or status reasons, they try and get in on the action. But God's not having a bar of it. God does it his way. Don't try and copy what he's doing in that sense. Now, of course, that's what we see these days again and again. We have a church in Cordova where you can buy a rose that's been pre-blessed and you take it home and it will cure cancer. We recently travelled through the north of Argentina and came across the cathedral in, in a city called Catamarca and at the back they have water. And there's a very interesting sign, which I've got a photo of, but it wouldn't really help you because it's all in Spanish. But it basically says, please do not use this water that's been blessed. Do not use it superstitiously. <laughs> right, okay. So it's to be used for religious purposes, but it clarifies not superstitious purposes. And you're sort of thinking, mm, right, okay, I'm, not, I'm a bit confused at this point <laughs> as to which ones clarify as religious and which ones clarify as superstitious. And we see this sort of thing, and it's interesting, then we read this verse in the Bible, verse 11 and 12, but I think the idea is it's quite clear. God does it his way when he pleases. And they're not to be copied. They're not to be imitated. And you don't try and do this sort of thing. Don't bring me later your handkerchiefs, please, especially if they're dirty. Um, <laughs> we don't try and copy that. What we're seeing here are some amazing one-off experiences, and particularly, I think, in this context of Ephesus, this impressive place which had this impressive temple, God does something amazing. And in verses 17 to 20 we actually see the astounding impact of the gospel in Ephesus. Read with me there, verses 17 to 20. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, which I think is referring to probably both of those things, Paul and his miracles, but also what happened to these seven sons of Sceva, they were all seized with fear and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honour. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. It's an amazing little commentary here, isn't it? True repentance. So as people saw that this was the true God at work as they heard the message about Jesus being the Messiah and the Lord, there was true repentance. They it was not syncretism. Now, in, syncretism is where we go mixing things with the... And that was very common in the ancient world. It's what you saw, really, in, 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 in last week in the passage on Athens, because the unknown God was really an attempt at syncretism. For the God that, just in case we've missed one out, we're going to have another idol over here. We'll just add one more in. And what happens here is not that Jesus gets, just gets added amongst the gods. 
these people, as they understood, as they feared the Lord, as they came to the Lord Jesus, realized that he was the only Lord. And they gave up their practices. Syncretism is something we find a great deal of in Argentina. So on the 1st of August, in the northwest of Argentina, everyone will make their offerings to the Pachamama. Pachamama is Mother Earth, or the, the, the goddess who belongs to the earth. Those same people will be at church, in the Catholic Church, on the Sunday. It's just been mixed in. The things have just been mixed across, uh, without any, any distinction being made. But the message that Paul preached, the Jesus that Paul preaches, doesn't allow for syncretism. It, allows, it, it, it is a call for wholehearted devotion not just adding Jesus to their list of gods. And we see there a public burning of sorcery, of magic scrolls. Now, the value, it tells us, was 50,000, where was it? 50,000 drachma. And a drachma, it's understood to be a day's wages. Now, I did a calculation here, which is very risky, because what is a day's wage in Sydney these days? Well, we won't do a survey, it's okay. Um, but if, if, if we think of a day's wage as $300 which is what the government was paying during the pandemic, $1,500 a week, I think. Is that right? Something like that. Or a fortnight, maybe. But if, if we think of $300 a day, let's just, start, let's just go with a number. Well, go with me here. <laughs> Those of you who earn more or less can, can work it out later. $300 a day. The value of these scrolls was $15 million Australian dollars. And maybe that doesn't sound that much these days because that's about the cost of a, buying a house, isn't it, in Sydney? Um, 15 million. But what's going on? This is a radical repentance. People are recognizing that Jesus is the Lord and it's hitting them in, in every part of their life, including in their wallets. What would it look like today in Glazeville? A radical repentance like that. What would our bonfire look like? What would we need to put on the bonfire to show that we had really radically turned to the Lord Jesus? Because it's more difficult for us, isn't it? Our gods are more subtle. Perhaps it would be a bonfire full of, I don't know, gourmet cookbooks or coffee machines, plane tickets. Perhaps the house plans need to go in there, maybe with a few luxury cars and boats added. There's all sorts of different gods, aren't there, in our, in, our, in, our, in our lives. All sorts of different gods who are trying to still vie for our divided attention. Saying that you can worship God and this, it's okay. It's all good. Just, just add another one in. But the gospel came to Ephesus and there was a radical transformation. Public display of repentance, a rejection of syncretism. And it leads, did you notice, to the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. As the gospel is preached and as people see this radical repentance, it has a profound effect, not just in Ephesus, but on the whole region. Fascinating, isn't it? Thinking about that as an evangelism strategy for today. An evangelism strategy of being true and deep repentance from those who put their trust in Jesus. A repentance that deeply impacts their dreams, their hopes, their wallets, and their bank accounts. Actually, a great evangelism strategy. Fourthly, 
we see the last section, the section we had read for us before, we see the gods, in inverted commas, responding to the preaching of Paul. For every action, they say, there is an equal and opposite reaction. Well, in the passage that we read earlier, we see that some people get really upset with Paul and his gang. Paul is bad for business. Verses 23 to 27, about that time there arose a great disturbance about the way a silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together, along with the workers in related trades, and said, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see in here how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger, not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. The preaching of the gospel is putting the idol makers out of business. It's fairly ironic, isn't it, when we read that? Because when you think about church history, we actually see it's often been the Christians who have kept the silversmiths in business (laughs) ironically in the new testament it was the christians who put the silversmiths out of business because they didn't want to have anything to do with idols and trinkets and other things but what is particularly interesting is not just the economic side of things but did you notice the need that demetrius has to defend the goddess herself verse 27 she is in danger of being robbed of her divine majesty And this, I think, is where Luke is showing us the contrast with the true and living God. See, the true and living God doesn't need us. Artemis, with her worshippers, without her worshippers, basically ceases to exist. They need to maintain her image. They need to maintain her status. They need to maintain her divine majesty. And he's worried that she's going to lose it. Because without worshippers... She is no longer. Do you remember these words from Psalm 115 that we heard earlier? Why do the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. But their idols are silver and gold, made by human hands. They have mouths, they can't speak. Eyes, they can't see. They have ears, but cannot hear, noses, but cannot smell. They have hands, but, but ca- cannot feel, the feet, but cannot walk, nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. The great contrast is here between the true and living God and the false gods who depend on the people who worship them because they've been put there by the people themselves. They've made them and they're the ones who maintain them and they feed them and they keep giving them the honour and without that, they cease to exist. In the end, we won't go into the details, but the riot doesn't lead anywhere. The city clerk is able to convince them that they're out of line. But Luke has shown us two things clearly in this passage. Firstly, the Gentiles will get involved when there's money on the line. They didn't want to get involved in Corinth, did they? It was just a matter for the Jews, sort it out yourself. When there's money on the line, well, that's when we're going to get involved. In Ephesus, there's money being lost, and so the Gentiles aren't going to sit back and ignore it. But secondly, I think the more important, Luke shows us that there really is a confrontation between the gods and the true God. Makes us think back to some, perhaps the Old Testament passages, Elijah and the showdown between the true God and the false gods. 
as the gospel is proclaimed, as Jesus is proclaimed as Lord and Messiah, people are turning from idols to worship the one true God. And that, of course, confronts the false gods who are only made of silver and gold, who are literally handcrafted. The great Artemis, who supposedly fell directly down from heaven, needs defending needs protecting, is in danger of losing her majesty. When things get rough for the idol worshippers, they need to act out of fear that their God is going to lose out. When the going gets rough for Christians, we don't need to come to the defence of God. He is not in danger. Even if all the world turns atheist, the one true God is not in danger of extinction. When things get rough for the Christians, we trust that God is in control, that he knows what he's doing, even when it seems difficult to see through the fog. Why do the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. I want to encourage you today, each one of you in your ministries, Whatever that ministry looks like, whether it's a formal ministry or an informal ministry at home, that really important ministry of raising kids, or a formal thing with scripture in schools or speaking to your workmates, whatever it is, when the discouragements come, when you're tempted, when others might be tempted to say, where is your God now? Or perhaps when you're tempted to ask the same question, we know our God is reigning in heaven. He has it all under his control. He knows what is happening. He knows what you're going through. And he's looking for faithfulness from you. Do not be silent. Keep speaking. Keep trusting. You may have a word from God to tell you this is the place you need to be. You may not. But you can trust that God is in heaven. That's not a a way of saying he's he's distant and aloof. It's a way of saying that he's in control. He knows what's going on. He knows the difficulties you're facing. He knows how hard it is. And he's asking you, like he called on the Apostle Paul, keep speaking, keep serving. Maybe it's hard to see through the fog in this moment. Keep speaking. Because our God is the one true God. And it doesn't depend, his existence, his sovereignty does not depend on the results. It doesn't depend on how many kids are coming to the class. It doesn't depend on how many people in Sydney are responding to us. It doesn't depend on how anti-Christian our society feels. And certainly it feels that, doesn't it? It doesn't de- God remains as God. He is in heaven. He is in control. Although all of Sydney turns against the gospel and we end up being a tiny minority, God is in control and he calls on us to keep speaking, keep being faithful. Keep trusting in him, even in the fog. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you as the one true God. As the one true God who does not depend on us, and does not depend on our handiwork. And yet you are the one true God who reigns in heaven and yet chooses to use us for your work. We thank you and praise you. Thank you for the way that you used Paul to bring radical change to the city of Ephesus and to Corinth. And Father God, we long for your gospel to have the same impact in Sydney, in Australia, in Argentina. And yet we know 
and we trust that even if we don't see the results we'd like to see, that you are sovereign, you are in control. Help us to keep trusting and keep being faithful in the ministries that you've given us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.